Have you been curious, puzzled, frustrated, or furious with recent legal decisions, including by the Supreme Court? We have too. But when we attended a lecture by constitutional law expert and professor of criminal justice, Mark Fischler, things suddenly began to make more sense. Mark's big picture, integrative and integral view shows how many recent judicial decisions can be understood in terms of the judge's beliefs, interpretive frameworks, and importantly, levels of psychological development. As you listen to Mark, you'll probably find yourself going, aha, now I understand. With Mark's big picture framework, some of the major court decisions and the cultural clashes they reflect begin to make more sense. You'll find this discussion as illuminating as we did. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, Life-Enhancing, Paradigm-Rattling Conversations with Cutting-Edge Thinkers contemplatives, and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. Deep Transformation, and I'm still John Dupuy, and there's Dr. Roger Wallace, my colleague and dear friend. Also have another colleague and dear friend today, Mark Fischler, and Mark is Professor of Criminal Justice Program Coordinator at Plymouth State University, and prior to that, my understanding, you were practicing law, and now you're you're teaching it. And we, we were at a conference recently in Sedona, first time a lot of us had gotten out since the pandemic had started. And we sat at the same table and I'd seen you before and, and talks and on, I don't know if we'd ever met in person before, but immediate, like in the first 30 seconds, it was obviously we had something going on. I felt like a, a long lost brother and it was just a real connection. And that was before I saw your, your really important conversation or a talk that you gave as far as an integral approach to the constitution and law and the things that are challenging us now in, as we struggle toward democracy in our country and, of course, around the world. So welcome, Mark. And if there's anything I missed, please fill it in. No, no, that's great. I'm I'm so honored to be here with you both. John, your work with iAwake has been an integral part of my, my process for a lot of years. If you look, you'll see I probably have almost all of your programs downloaded and formally on CD. And so thank you for your work. And And Roger has been an idol of mine for a long time. I remember the first time I was in your presence was the early integral 2004, the first workshops outside of Boulder. You led some beautiful, beautiful stuff that week that I still have notes from and have used in different workshops that I've done over the years. And it's always been great to see you. And it was glad that we had a little moment before the conference started, getting off the airplane from Denver. Well, welcome, Mark. And there's so much we can we can talk about. You, <laughs> you've done something I would have thought impossible, <laughs> going into your materials, reading, your, listening to your talks, reading your writings, has actually made me fascinated by constitutional law, which I would have <laughs> thought of as the height of height of boredom. But yeah, I've become intrigued. Please tell us how did you come to this, and you're bringing a very unique perspective. How did how did that happen? Yeah, well, you know, it's really interesting. I was in college, and I was a political science major, and I 
had strong ambition to get into politics. I felt really empowered that way. I really thought that was going to be my path. And I remember I had a class with a professor by the name of John Kaiser on political philosophy. And I read Plato and Socrates for the first time. And I, I read The Republic. Interestingly enough, I was taking a philosophy class at the same time, and they were reading the book as well. And so it was kind of neat to, to see two, two different perspectives on it. But that really ignited in me this kind of question about justice. And it was interesting because going into my senior year of college, Professor Kaiser came up to me. He had thought I had was a senior the previous year. And he said, what are you doing here? Why aren't you in law school? And I remember saying like, you know, what, what is he talking about? You know, I had this, I don't know why I, I had this idea that I was going to go to graduate school, work on Capitol Hill and become a chief of staff for somebody eventually, and then eventually run for office myself and get a degree in political science. I, I thought that was the path. And Kaiser, you know, hit me over the head, this idea that, you know, you just have this thirst for justice and finding out the meaning of justice. And there's no better path than, you know, to pursue that in law school. And so that left a seed inside of me that I eventually listened to. And once I got to law school, because I really didn't, I hadn't taken a constitutional law class in college, and I really didn't know what law school was about. But once I got there, and I started to see how I could read these cases, and and I would read, you know, what I would think to be the majority opinion. And, and I would sit there and I would agree with them. I said, well, that's really great logic and great reasoning and makes all kinds of sense. And then I would read the dissent and I would be equally in agreement with them. And uh, my brain started to explode and I really, really couldn't. I ended up getting in arguments with my girlfriend at the time because some of the issues where I had come down. So I think Green progressively, I wasn't coming down that strongly anymore when it came to at least reasoning and the law. And so it was a beautiful process. I really loved law school. And it was interesting because kind of the foundation of legal theory comes down to kind of natural law versus mm -hmm. positive law. And, and so you know, at, at that point in life, I didn't have words to kind of describe how the natural law is kind of this internal interior aspect values that we, you know, espouse. And then on the other side, the positive law is the more observable, you know, factual expression. And you were supposed to decide. I remember having to write this paper in jurisprudence about what side I was on. And I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't decide. I had this great level of dissonance until a guy named Ken Wilbur came into my life a few years later, which reduced my dissonance to very low levels because he was able to show me how this was the exterior and interior of a situation. And so, you know, that was, that was the beginning of a love affair that's really lasted, you know, the last, I guess, 30, almost 30 years. And Mark, when you were practicing law, what, what did you do? Were you a prosecutor or a defender? Were you so, 
you know, maybe, maybe, you know, let me, let me draw back a little bit. I was, when I was in law school, I, I really got into constitutional law and I also kind of, I took law, a law class with a professor named Mel Zarr, who represented Dr. Martin Luther King at one point in his career. And, and he, he taught the law from this perspective of pragmatism, that the law is a lawyer driven process. And he said, you know, if you want to be where the action is at and where the law is really happening, it's, it's in the criminal courts. And, and the person that has the most power in the criminal courts is not the judge, but the prosecutor. And, and so, you know, I saw that and I, you know, I had grown up in a house where my dad was a professor. He was, uh, you know, taught multicultural education, kind of always you know, he was the head of the Black Student Union at my university where there were no Black professors. You know, so we always kind of came down on the side of the minority, kind of fighting for the little guy. And so with that, I kind of, I got a little bit more excited about standing with the impoverished. And, and so I eventually became a New Hampshire public defender. But during that, before that time, before I became a public defender, when I was in law school, I had a moment in time where my everything changed for me. Everything changed. I was in Yellowstone Park in Wyoming with my mom and dad and my sister, who's a little younger than me. We were out there because my, my grandparents, who it was 1996, and they were on their last legs of life. They were suffering from different illnesses, but were really both coming to the end. And literally, within a week of each other had come to an end in December of 96. So I'm, I'm out there, but we're, we're in Denver, but we can't stay with them for very long. So we go to Yellowstone because we hadn't gone and it was about a nine hour drive. And we're out there and I had a, my mindset back then was I was on a mission. I had to add two states to my list. I had to add Idaho and Montana to my list. And I also needed to uh, get back to the hotel in time so that my father could pay for a steak dinner at the boutique motel, a hotel, as opposed to the cafeteria in Yellowstone. And so this was my mindset. And so we started, we, we went to some beautiful waterfalls. I don't know if you both have been out to Yellowstone, but we went to a place called the Lower Falls. And we, we had a poignant moment where a father and his son were trying to make their way down while the son was in a wheelchair to experience the beauty that we did. And, and I noticed that coming back up and we all did. Well, right after that, I forgot about it. I got back in the car and I started driving and, and I'm trying to get to these places and et cetera. And I start driving through Hayden Valley and Hayden Valley is like the Serengeti. It's got beautiful wild animals passing vast, vast valleys of beauty. And I'm behind a car that's taking it all in and I don't want to take it in. So I literally almost start beeping the horn, but I don't. But I start screaming in the car with my mom, my sister, and my dad. My dad's in the front seat and he looks over at me and he says, hey, Mark, why don't you think about the son and the father and the son in the wheelchair? We're still trying to make up, make it up the mountain. Well, you yell about what? And that was it. 
I said quietly in my mind that there is something deeply wrong with how you relate to the world. And I took my foot off the pedal and I got quiet. And I basically didn't talk beyond a whisper for the next two or three days because everything that came out of my mouth was judgment. I was intoxicated with judging others and, and lacking gratitude. So, I mean, I couldn't even actually lift my head up in a supermarket without judging people. So I kept my head down for those three days. And so we eventually made our way to Aspen, kind of looping back to Aurora. My daughter's name is Aurora, by the way, Colorado. And I left my parents for the day and went to the Aspen bookstore. And I found a book on that was called The Three Pillars of Zen by Roshi Philip Kaplow. It was the 30th anniversary edition. And I started meditating there on the spot, developed a practice. And that was the summer after my second year of law school and going into my third year of law school. And so I started practicing in the closet. Uh, and I literally would, before law school class, I would sit in my room with the door locked with my two best friends who are still my best friends today. And I would lock the door and I would sit on three pillows for about five, 10 minutes. And then I would pop out and say, hey, what's going on? And go to class. And from there, everything started to deepen. So I'll, I'll stop there if you guys want to jump in. Well, I'm, so, I'm struck by the the transformative power, the insight you had into the omnipresence and destructiveness and pain of the judging mind. And you remind me of the third Zen patriarch has, has a couple of lines. And the burdensome task of judging brings annoyance and weariness. And the realization of how much we are continually judging and how much of the separate self-sense, the ego, lives by judging. Is, you give a beautiful story of the just how transformative that recognition can be and coupled with meditation. So, so what I hear you bringing to the law a number of, maybe not unique in each case, but a rare combination of qualities. First, an exceptional degree of open-mindedness and a capacity for holding apparently oppositional viewpoints, acknowledging both the <laughs> both arguments in a, in a case or in a judgment, then a recognition of then an integral framework and a contemplative practice and a recognition of the incapacitating extent of, of condemnation. That's a that's a rare combina combination of qualities. And how do you feel that's informed your understanding of law? Well, that's a great question. There's another piece of it that I want to add that's probably a psychological aspect of this that I think creates the full foundation story about how I experienced the law. I had a hero when I was in law school, a guy by the name of Jerry Spence, 
who is a Wyoming lawyer who's written a number of books. And I had the opportunity of studying with him at his ranch in Wyoming. He started a program called the Trial Lawyers College. And Mr. Spence practiced the law from a completely different way than the, what the traditional approach of law school, the traditional approach to trial law, et cetera. He was humanistic. And I say that, that when I got accepted, I, when I was a new public defender, I applied to go to his trialers college in Wyoming in Dubois. Wyoming seems to come up in my life a lot as a place of foundational change. When I applied, and actually the public defender didn't support me going out there because I was a new attorney and they only sent people to experience that, these kinds of programs after three or four years of practice. And nobody, they didn't send anybody to Jerry Spence's because it was too woo-woo and stuff like that. But I knew it was the right way. And, and so when I, before we even got out there, he had us read a book called On Becoming a Person by the great humanistic psychologist Carl Rogers. And, you know, I think we were only supposed to read three chapters, but if you're getting any sense of me, <laughs> I devoured the book. And, and it was, you know, we had some Carl Rogers books in our house. And so I, I just devoured it and saw that what Spence taught month that I was there was that you have to be a human being. You have to be an authentic being to represent others. And to represent others is to love others and that you, you have to love your client and that you have to be a real human being with the jury and all of that. So we, we went through psychotherapeutic process. And some people went out there saying, hey, I came out here to win a million dollars. <laughs> and they dropped out immediately and, and left, left the program. And then others, you know, were hungry to learn more about ourselves. And it was a profound experience. We, we did psychodrama. You know, it was another level. This was about two years after I had started meditating pretty intensely, maybe three years. And I learned some things about myself out there that took it to another level. I, I had an experience where I kind of saw that I really wasn't there for all beings, that I was selectively there, that I was choosing to be around maybe the famous attorneys, or I was choosing to be around you know, more attractive individuals that I thought I could learn something from. And so I made a decision when I was there that I was going to get to know every single person at the Trialers College, from the ranch hand to the cook, um, et cetera, you know, truly taking a bodhisattva approach of being there and taking in and appreciating all beings. I hadn't taken my bodhisattva vow yet at that point in my life. And so I did that. And I saw the difference within a couple of weeks where people started to relate to me differently and giving me real objective feedback that reflected that. And I brought that back to my practice of law. So, you know, at this point in time when I'm practicing law, I hadn't read, I hadn't read Wilbur, but I was, you know, practicing Tonglen and compassionate practices. I was driving 40,000 miles a year 
in my car covering courthouses in northern New Hampshire. And uh, in, 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 in between, I had my tape player and I was listening to Pema Chodron, Reggie Ray, Ram Dass, and various spiritual teachers, Shunru Suzuki, and trying to deepen my practice as a human being, and also learning to relate to all human beings so that I was there for the police officer that was my opponent. I was there for the court clerk that scheduled my cases, that I wasn't just there for the judge, but I got to know the judge as a human being and where they lived and where they had camps and and their grandkids and their stories. And I tried to do that with all beings. Beautiful. So this really was a humanistic approach to your life and the law. So, so, so many threads bringing, combining here to bring your unique perspective, the humanistic, a spiritual practice, contemplative, your open-mindedness to opposing, apparently oppositional perspectives, and then the integral perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's interesting because the spiritual practice deepened and this was another profound moment. It was the summer of 2000. So I guess this is four years after I had started consciously meditating. I had a moment in time after I'd hiked a mountain in the White Mountains of New Hampshire, which are the biggest mountains in the Northeast and some of the oldest mountains in the world and a very powerful place. I remember I came back to my apartment in Sugar Hill and I was getting some food out and I just paused for a second and I said out loud to myself, wait a minute, am I supposed to leave everything? And why I said that, the rational mind has no, but it was an intuitive thing that popped up and my body almost literally shook from a soul level of a feeling that I had never had allowed myself to experience up to that point of existence, which said yes. And it was overwhelming beyond words. And, and I, couldn't, I couldn't make sense of it, obviously. And I shut it down at the moment because I, I said, what, you know, my practice, I'm, if I want to, I'm about to become the managing attorney of my law office or my, my public defender's office. The former president of the criminal defense bar for the United States of America, Bob Fogelnest has offered me a job in New York City to practice with him. The leading attorney in the state of New Hampshire for criminal defense has seen me and has also offered me a job. I'm winning trials. I am doing good work. I am, by all measurements, successful and enjoying it. Uh, you know, one of the aspects of being a lawyer that I didn't expect when I became a public defender was, and I, and I attribute this to the spiritual practice, was that I didn't realize I was going to love my clients. That, you know, the folks that committed sometimes horrific acts, many times just not very smart acts, you know, ego, very ego-centered. I love these people. I 
I would end almost every first interview. And again, this was something that I didn't expect. But I would end almost every interview by saying, there but by the grace of God go I. I. I just, and I didn't expect that. I, I came into the work with the notion of Jesus's teaching of stand for the downtrodden and the hated. And, and that felt right and strong. But I didn't know I was going to love my clients and care for them so deeply. And so, you know, when, when that notion came up, I was supposed to leave everything. I, I didn't know what to make of it. So I shut it down and I ignored it for about three weeks. And then I said it again. And then boom, an overwhelming soulful expression. Socrates called it the demon spoke. And I said, I've got to listen to this. And so I, I came up with a plan and it was coming around my 30th birthday. And I had made the decision quietly to myself that I'm going to leave everything and I'm giving this all up. And so I gave my notice. I wanted to do it in a way of dignity. So I waited for a long time until they could get somebody to replace me. And I left the work in January of 2001 and went on my spiritual journey of, you know, where I was devoted to a spiritual journey. And so that was made up for the next year and a half, two years of my life. Mm, what a gutsy thing to success is such a uh, such a challenge to let go of. <laughs> Beautiful that you're able to do that. And so so clearly your life was transformed by by that decision and the deepening of practice. So maybe we could come to to some specifics of how how you now see, for example, Law, or perhaps I know you you've spoke you spoke at the conference very beautifully about the Supreme Court and its current activities and the shifts it's gone gone through recently, in a way which was totally illuminating for me and I think a lot of us. It just made sense of things in a whole new way. So would that be a way into yeah how to how to apply? Can I ask you? Yeah, John, I, I'm just fascinated. These series of you know spiritual experiences and openings that's culminated in just dropping everything of something that you worked very hard and very skillfully over the years to achieve to become a successful lawyer and to be offered all these different positions. So what did that year and a half look like? What did you do? Did you stay at home? Did you go to India? Did you hang out in the mountains? Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it actually connects to, to Ken. And so, which brings the integral perspective uh, part of it. I, I left and I went to various spiritual centers. I went up to Karma Choling in Vermont and, and spent some time there. I went down to North Carolina and spent time with Bo Lozoff. And his spiritual work, I don't know if you remember Bo's book, he's passed away, we're all doing time, but he did work with prisoners and that was meaningful for me. And and then I, my last at least scheduled piece of my journey was to go to a workshop over Easter weekend 
with Miguel Ruiz and of the Four Agreements fame and the Toltecs. And that led to meeting my spiritual teacher, La Doña Ginny Gentry, who was his former teaching partner. She was a part of that weekend. And she had a five-day workshop after his. And I ended up living on her land and being her apprentice for about a year and a half of life, living in a yurt, experiencing the Toltec spiritual tradition. And that was very, very, very obviously powerful, life-changing, transformative. And and again, I had a hit while I was out there that I was supposed to become a teacher. And I just didn't understand how that would be. And I had another hit that I was supposed to come East and come back East. And so, you know, part of this story that as I was writing with you gentlemen earlier is that, you know, ever since that moment in the summer of 2000, uh, life has become an aspect of surrender for me where I, I truly don't know where things are going. You know, sometimes people will ask me, are you going to go back to the law? And I'm like, I don't know. I mean, I could, you know, if that's where the universe is calling me to go. Hey, hey Mark, could you, just, a counselor, I got to throw in a question. Could you just tell us the four agreements, uh, what they are? Because I was also impacted by this teaching. And uh, for those of, you know, here that with us listening who haven't experienced that, I think it would be helpful just to lay it out there. It's very transformative. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the first agreement. And so these are kind of governing principles on how to live your life. And if you dive into each one of the agreements, it's, it's really a lifetime of process of, of spiritual understanding. You know, one is to be impeccable with your word. And, and so to really dive into what, what does your word mean? What does it mean to gossip? What does it mean to speak truth? What does it mean to speak with sensitivity and love? And then the second agreement is to not make assumptions. And, you know, that's the, I mean, my God, you know, just to, 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 to the opposite of really living with assumptions is to live with curiosity, to, to be open to, to all things. And not to think you know everything. Yeah. Be open to not knowing. Right, exactly. Uh, which is the Socratic notion of wisdom is, is to not know. And, and so, you know, you've got that assumption to move beyond. Another agreement is to always do our best. You know, what, what does that mean to always do our best? Well, you know, that, that means that you're actually going to give 100%. You're, you're not going to do things that in, in ways where you're, where you're not giving your full attention, you're not being fully there with another human being. And so there's that one. And then I, I think a big one for all of us is to not take things personally, you know? And, and so, you know, Jesus is what he said on the, on the cross, you know, forgive them for they know not what they've done. It all begins there, you know, and, 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 and because w- when you dive into not taking things personally, you start to see that there is no you <laughs> to take. And, <laughs> and that this ego self that, that Roger was talking about earlier is a misguided notion of self. And, and so 
you know, it's the small cell. And, and so that, that you actually think can get injured. And so if you can start to actually live your life in a way that doesn't see that, then you can start to embody the true aspect of who you really are. And so, you know, that was, you know, those were powerful pieces. And my teacher was relentless and, and vicious with me in the best sense of the way of, of being relentless on my ego. And there were some hard times. There were many times that I packed up to leave and and we've talked about that since. And she was very aware of those nights that I was packed up. It was very easy for me to go. I was living out of my car, but I didn't. And I'm grateful to Ginny and, and for the work. And a small aspect of the story of, of our connection here in Sedona was that I was scheduled to be Come the executive director of the Don Miguel Ruiz Leadership School in Sedona, Arizona, in the spring of 2002, and for a lot of different reasons, for many of which I'm thankful of, it didn't work out. But during that time when I was out there, I was introduced to Ken's work, and this person who kind of was able to connect Eastern wisdom and Western wisdom, and that really kind of created that integral lens that I know, Roger, you want me to talk about a little bit about in terms of the law. And so, you know, it's been a 20 years plus experience with Ken's work since then. And I don't know the four agreements, so I'm grateful, John, that you asked Mark to fill them out. Yeah, thank you, Mark. That's great. And I'm, I, 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 I'm struck by the, the fact that each of those is a lifetime's practice. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've done some workshops with people that are like three hours, and I'm like, we, we need at least three hours for just one of these. But, <laughs> but yes, it's a it's a it's a lifetime process, and mm. and I hope people will strike into them and and look into them, and because they relate to all spiritual traditions in every way, and will teach you a lot. Yeah, I can certainly see that. I, I'm eager to hear your how you bring this to, to law, but John, yeah. you, you were on mute, and I was, I was wondering. I think he's quite, kind of quiet. Well, this is a- not normal. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, 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 I'm so excited by this. I'm getting. I have so many things firing in my heart and my brain, and we haven't quite got you to being a professor. Yeah, but it's it's both you and Roger. And myself to a certain extent, you know, we, we've been on the spiritual path and we do practices where we stop thinking. Yet at the same time, we are all very to, brief periods yeah, <laughs> to to do our best thinking. And you are you are called as a lawyer to make judgments and make discernments, both with your clients, with you know, all that's going on, and and to bring out that sort of of wisdom and and perception. And how did this, I mean, I could ask Roger just as well, how did this, this opening and, and, and spiritual process of spiritual enlightenment, and I'm not saying it's a finish point, but obviously, you're on that road, how did that affect your relationship of needing to have a fine, honed, brilliant mind for your clients and also later for your students. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I think for me, the notion of being of service to others has been the foundational piece of driving me to deepen my understanding of the law, to deepen my understanding of 
being a professor or, you know, I was a lawyer for a short period of time, about three and a half years, four years. But I took those lessons from Jerry Spence and my spiritual practice into the classroom. And, you know, I don't have any formal teaching background or I was never taught on how to be a teacher, but I took those lessons of from Carl Rogers, et cetera. But from the spiritual end, it's of being of service to others. And how can I be most effective? And that drives me, you know, to this day on, I tell my students at the beginning of the semester that I, I hope to teach the best class I've ever taught in my life with them and to have the most insight and to grow and to be a better human being at the end of the day. And so, you know, I feel the same way in terms of, you know, how, what, how can I understand the law at this kind of time where, you know, we live in this pluralistic society, but we don't really recognize, I was listening to somebody talking about this a little bit, but, you know, we're, we're in this stage of pluralism, but we, we sure don't act that way. We certainly act as if somebody has the whole enchilada and has the whole understanding of the story and everybody else is completely wrong. And you saw that with Justice Alito's decision in the Dobbs case, which overturned Roe versus Wade, where you know he used the language that Roe was egregiously wrong, not just partly wrong, but egregiously wrong. And so we, we're, we're living in a society where, you know, we have, as Jess Salzman points out, you know, we have the traditional modern and, and postmodern viewpoints, but everybody seems to think that their viewpoint is the only one that really matters. Absolutely. And everybody else is absolutely wrong. And right. boy, that's just not a good place to start from, is it? No. And, and so that, that dissonance has been a part of my life. Like, God, I feel like there is partial truth here. And, and so Wilbur, you know, our friend and more to me, my mentor has been, you know, foundational in helping me see that, you know, these are just perspectives that reflect people's values and understanding of the world from their world point of view. And, from their center of gravity. And so, you know, can we start to have a conversation about the law where we kind of pull back a little bit, start to get a 30,000 foot point of view and start to see that these viewpoints transcend and include each other and they're not the be all end all, including integral, as I said at the conference or or in one of my slides that I fully expect that the perspective that I may illuminate with you all today will be kindergarten level in 500 years from now. And, and there will be higher and deeper perspectives to take. And so, you know, I think something I didn't get to get into a little bit at the conference, but we need to lighten up a little bit about all of this and lighten up on our perspective in being the absolute be all end all and start to see how the pieces fit together and and start to kind of have a different way of relating with the law. You know, just just as an example, 
this idea that the Supreme Court is the only folks that get to decide what the law is, is a very new notion in our nation's history. It's really about as old as the 1950s and Brown versus Board of Education, where the Supreme Court started to assert itself as the body that gets to only decide what the law is. That was the Warren Court, if I'm not mistaken. That was the Warren Court. And there were reasons why they did that and why a lot of folks fell in the line. You know, you had a, a South that was kind of resisting the times, resisting the fact that our nation was pluralistic, our, our people are of different multicultural backgrounds, and, and just kind of, they really kind of had to lay down the law, and the federal government had to get behind them to enforce, you know, voting rights, to enforce desegregation and all of those things. And so a lot of pieces came into play that allowed the court to kind of take this kind of foundational, we are the only ones that decide the law. But prior to that, it's been a competing notion that each of the branches of government have their own perspective on what the law is. And we, you know, we have a fight over it and, and or a dialectic or a process. And, and, you know, the Supreme Court itself wasn't this from the start. The Supreme Court was definitely kind of the more bottom branch of government, if they, you know, certainly not totally co-equal by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, they were, I think their first meeting was in the basement of an exchange place in New York City. They didn't get their own home until 1935. I think Justice Hatt, Taft, who was a former president of the United States, put that in motion where they eventually had their own building. But they never had that. I mean, even this great case of Marbury versus Madison, where the Supreme Court says we get to say what the law is. It was a back down case where they they knew that Jefferson wasn't going to follow anything that they laid down. And so they totally backed down in, in that situation. And that's kind of been the history of it. And so Mark, can, can I throw in a question here? So the Warren Court, that was they were responsible for the ending of, of segregation. Yeah. And they did a lot of really important things. But I kind of get that you're, you know, you thought maybe they didn't handle it as well as they should have. If you could go back and you were Warren, uh, how would you have done differently, acted differently with these really essential questions to our, our evolving democracy? Well, I'm not sure. I, you know, that's a great question, John. I, I, I mean, I don't think they could have done Brown any differently. I mean, they they needed to be unified. They needed to say that you know desegregation in this time, at this point in history, or or segregation, excuse me, is wrong, violative of the Equal Protection Clause of the Fourteenth Amendment. You know, and I, I I think they had to you know, lay down the law and say that one person, one vote, Reynolds versus Sims, some of these decisions where, you know, the South was just not playing ball. And and they had to come down pretty strongly on that. I would say where, you know, where I think we might go in a little bit of a different direction is when we get to Roe. Because, you know, I think, 
universally, at least in terms of lawyers, the Roe decision isn't really considered a great decision. I think from an integral perspective, I think they came out with a good policy uh, of sorts where they basically recognized that a woman has a right to privacy, she has certain rights, and that you know those rights lessen as viability becomes more prevalent. But the state really, they kind of just laid it down. The state has no interest at all in the process. And I'm not so sure if that was the best way. You know, I was listening to a legal professor talk about how Germany kind of dealt with with abortion. And, you know, what the German courts did was that they recognized that a woman has independence over her body, but that there is a being that does have worth that we need to recognize as well. And when you read Alito's opinion, you know, he's kind of more like, what about that fetus and the rights of the fetus, you know, and in terms of you all on the left keep talking about all the rights of the woman, but what about the rights of the, the fetus? And I think that if we had a more honest conversation from the start and said that there is a being there and where that goes in terms of, you know, we'd like to leave it more to the federal government and the states to figure out how to, to make that work, which is what they kind of did in Germany. And, and they developed greater social policies from what I understood in listening to this podcast. They developed different social welfare systems because, you know, the bottom line is I think we all could agree that we would like abortion to be minimized, you know, that, that people don't have to have to make that decision. But what are we doing in terms of social welfare to support the individuals that can feel like they can actually uh, bring up that baby in a way that will allow them to li- live a self-actualized existence and, and support the child in the process. So, you know, not having this, you know, strong dichotomy that it's absolute rights here and absolute rights there and, and putting all of this power into this court, I think it would be better if branches were more involved in deciding what the law is. And that's really like what I was saying, the history of the United States reflects that. It's just not until recently that we really empowered the courts in this direction. And and so when that happened in the 50s and 60s and the Warren Court started to really kind of impose individual rights in the criminal justice system, you know, the the right to to right to counsel, the, the right to silence. There is nothing written in the Constitution that talks about Miranda warnings. You know, that, that's not there. That's not literally there. That's understood. That's been interpreted. You know, all the, the right to privacy, the right to contraception, all of these different things have been kind of interpreted in. And so what you happened was, what happened was the amber folks and orange folks, at least to some degree, that felt like that the marketplace wasn't fully open, started to assert themselves. And in the 70s and early 80s, they started things like the Heritage Society, the Federalist Society, and they started to kind of come up with their own way of judicial interpretation that 
they wanted to kind of develop to counter the Warren Court's kind of individual rights revolution. And they came up with this idea of originalism. And again, you know, and they, and they would argue that, you know, this is how it's always been. They, they, this is not how it's always been. Can you just tell us uh, briefly what originalism means for those of us? Who are- and Mark, maybe you've, you've put out so much here. Maybe it'd be good to just highlight some of the things you've, you've put out. Go for it. You've talked about, for example, the, the absolutism of a lot of the thinking that has been going on around politics and legal situation. You spoke of us being pluralist, but you are implying pluralism in a specific way, that we are a pluralistic society in the sense that sense that there are many kinds of people and communities in our society. And points of view. And points of view. But not pluralism in the in the sense of of the psychological capacity for acknowledging and honoring and integrating multiple points of view. So a very important distinction there. We have a reality, external reality, but for the most part, what you're saying is we don't yet have have the psychological sophistication to adequately respond to, to embrace, and to find a common underlying denominator or theme for that pluralism. You yes. also said that you know, as an antidote to the absolutism, we really need to lighten up. But we, we need to acknowledge that lightening up is a, is a practice unto itself. It requires relinquishing attach, attachment, uh, lessening of our egocentricity. <laughs> it requires a decrease of the judgmental mind you spoke so yes. beautifully about. So, again, this is like the four... Uh, the, the four agreements. This is not a, a small thing, but very important. You emphasize the need for honest conversations rather than not what I took from it was honest conversations in which we explore together the, some of the fundamental questions that underlie these decisions and values and priorities. And as opposed to the polarizing, I'm right, you're wrong perspectives. And you counted, you placed in opposition to some of these values. For example, the recent uh, uh, Dobbs case, of Ro- which overturned Roe versus Roe decision, and pointing out that El- Judge Eliotto had taken a very absolutist perspective. This is the way it is. This is what's right. This is the way it should have been. And so you put out so much. I wanted to make sure we just yeah. Just acknowledge all these, and as you move into the application to the to the Supreme Court and the legal system, as you're doing now, that, uh, that we have these pieces in place to to understand. Also, I want to say that uh, you mentioned some of the colors, which are often in the integral yeah. thinking associated with the with particular developmental stages. But those won't be familiar to all our listeners. The, for example, the amber stage is the conventional stage. Yes. And the orange stage is the stage of rationality, logic, and more than that. But, but it's not so, it's a stage beyond the conventional mythic yes. belief system. So, so anyway, there's a, so much in what you've said. I want to un, bring Thank attention you. to it and unpack it. And, and now maybe you're on your way to, and you would, were very beautifully talking about some of the some of the ways these things have played out in, yeah. in the justice system. 
and and Mark, I, I've got one as as a lawyer, as a professor of the law, uh, at an integral level of consciousness. I'm just going to really assume my intuition is wrong, and and that's where you're coming from. Are you able? Do you feel like going back to abortion, where you have this just absolutist, you know, on both sides? Do you feel you're able to treat with both sides in a way where each side feels heard and respected? And that they will entertain being in in conversation with you as we work out this stuff. In other words, can you explain the the amber, the blue, or the traditionalist opinion along with feminist yeah. concerns along this? And can you work with both of those from this place? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I for the first time at the university, I, I got to teach a pure con law class. I work out of the criminal justice department, but political science, which we're kind of clustering with, and I'm close friends with their leader, asked me to teach their civil liberties course. And so, which kind of led to this work or program that I did in Sedona. And, you know, you're, I'm teaching at a university where, you know, 40% or 45% of the students are first generation and it's a state university. And, and so, you know, I'm going to have folks from diverse points of view and I value that. I think that's so important. And so, uh, as I told you, you know, the, you know, the spiritual calling in terms of putting this all into practice is to be of service and to be of service requires that I can take to me, at least at this point in time, that I can take the amber point of view, the traditional, conventional, you know, point of view and live it and understand it and share the importance of it to my students and so that they feel heard and valued. That's an important part of my evaluation process is ensuring that all of my students feel feel heard and, and seen. And so, you know, that requires me seeing their intrinsic worth and getting to know them. Like I tried to get to know my clients and to understand their background, their values, where they're coming from and what they see is important and to try to, you know, help them see that I see them. And so, yes, that is absolutely important in really all aspects of my work at this point in time in, in, whether it's on the school board or in the classroom or if I'm at a conference talking legal theory is to ensure that folks from the different perspectives feel, feel heard. Otherwise, I think, you know, it's, it's our challenge as integralists to do that. And if we're not doing that, then I, I think we have to take an honest look in the mirror about where is our center of gravity and what is our what is our agenda? And, you know, I'm, I'm more in the process right now of just trying to surrender to something far bigger than little Mark Fishler at this time. And so, yeah, that would be my answer, John. And as you cultivate your capacity to hold and unvalue different perspectives and the people who hold them, how does that inform your understanding of, for example, the the Supreme Court at the moment, which I know is an interest of yours. And yeah. So, yeah. Well, I think, you know, that, 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 that comment that I made that 
maybe sounded flippant, you know, about lightening up. And, and, and I'm glad, Roger, you you kind of touched on it because it's it's a deep process, what we're talking about here, to kind of fully understand where folks are coming from, to understand Alito's point of view. I've listened to a lot of progressive podcasts because I would probably say my center of gravity edges in that direction. But the kind of dismissive nature of the other side is is really felt. I've known a great number of police officers and there's that psychological term called the emotional contagion. And where, where folks can really feel what other people think and, and feel about them. And I promise you, I, I certainly know with Justice Alito, maybe less with Thomas. Oh, no, actually, definitely with Thomas. They feel dismissed. They feel not heard, not respected, just that they are, you know, out of it. And, and, and they carry that. They carry that with them. And, and that's truly tragic because they do have, they are brilliant individuals. I just read a book called The Enigma of Clarence Thomas, which was a really great read, which taught me a whole lot that I didn't know that he's, in many ways, he's a black nationalist and has always been a black nationalist. And if you kind of follow his conservative points of view, it's much more of the Stokely Carmichael, very old, the, the early Malcolm X with Elijah Muhammad kind of approach to black emancipation. And who doesn't see any shot of integration in reality and very much understands racism and very much lived those things. But do progressives really get that? Not the ones that I know or read or have studied. I'd, I'd never heard that myself, just what you're saying about him. So that's... that's... Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, this is a guy who gets in his Winnebago with his wife, whatever, you know, you might think of, of Jenny. And and they, they tour the country and love going places and parking at Walmart and uh, you know, seeing the seeing the country that way and and being, you know, not not a star and and just hopefully not seen and just talking to other human beings. I've heard many folks that have just known him that find him to be a very fine, kind, caring human being. And and Mark, black nationalist means what? Well, in his sense, that black folks have to almost kind of segregate themselves from the rest of society, have their own place, have their own economy, have their own world of being clean and taking responsibility for their own lives. Absolutely. In every way. And kind of that very much interior perspective and and not rely on the system for anything. And in fact, you know, I have outright hostility towards any kind of systemic, you know. Welfare? Welfare, yeah, absolutely. The welfare in, in, in his mind was ruinous for his sister and, and so many others. And, and any reliance on a system 
that you truly have to pick yourself up by your own bootstrap. Kind of a very Thomas Sowell, anyone knows the Black philosopher, economist Thomas Sowell. And what, what I hear in this, Mark, is, is again the application of your humanism, your Carl Rogers influence, that, that to know that we, it's really crucial to truly come to know, be open to another human being and, and relate to them authentically as a human being. And one can disagree very strongly about points of view, perspectives, in this case, legal decisions, and yet how to do that without bringing in the condemning, judging mind and dismissing them, dehumanizing them, which yes. just just inflames, in many cases, their original position. So uh, I'm seeing how uh, the infl key influences on your life that you pointed to are uh, informing your, your perspective on law. Yes. I'd like to zero in and have your thoughts and your understand your vision of a recent decision in uh, the 21-22 court that, to my mind, it was just as, in some ways, perhaps even more influential and consequential the, as the Dobbs decision on Roe versus Wade. That was the decision which denied the EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, the authority to require power plants to shift from coal in order to slow global warming. That seems, yeah. that, that seems like it's going to affect everyone on the planet. Tune in for episode two of our dialogue with constitutional law expert Mark Fischler as he dives deeper into his brilliant explanation of recent court decisions and how we can grow into more mature, compassionate forms of law. Today's episode was brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation Podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.